and having my morning tea. And I read a chapter from Dr. John's book just now. And it made me feel like this should be my episode today. I was going to read something else, but I really loved this particular chapter. So I think that's going to that's gonna be it. And it resonated with me because of a lot of the energy going on in the world right now is shifting so drastically and, and constantly. I have not felt okay with it. I was talking a lot on, on Instagram. I mean, that's my way to connect with people because I, you know, I, I, I live, <laughs> I'm isolated. I'm in this weird solo journey, but, uh, seeing how the world is, I was talking to Chloe about it a little bit on whatever that day that I think it was Monday. Um, New Yorkers just don't care anymore. I have a lot of friends. I'm, I'm thankful that I have a lot of friends who I can relate to on this. Like I'm conservative and I'm binary with this. Like I have no reason to get sick. I have no reason to endanger others. I can do all of my work remote. The only thing that I cannot do remote is shoot my film. And I've been putting that together and I have like, we're doing so much work to prepare for the restrictions and to do it right. Like I'm, I'm hiring two ADs who are both, who both just finished other shoots in order to prepare properly. There's five documents we're using like, and going by the letter to them. I mean, by the way, this is far off. We're, we're months away from potential shooting who knows if it's going to happen, but I'm just, I'm taking it so seriously. And that is the only thing that I'm considering doing. Like if someone hit me up about, about DJing, like about a residency, (laughs) he was like, he was like, Oh yeah, I've heard people are, are getting started. I was like, you're an idiot. You know, like, sorry, you're not my people. Like with respect, fuck off. Like I didn't say it like that, but that's what I felt. Um, I feel that there's very valid reasons for the restart, but that's not why we're restarting. Like Sammy Hagar talked about, like people can endanger themselves. That's fine. That's your prerogative. You must be responsible civically to not endanger others and not inspire others to endanger others. But no, like it, I'm not taking away from you. You're right to just be like, fuck it. If it's my time, it's my time. I shared a long thread yesterday about a friend who responded to me when I was sharing my thoughts on this about, you know, if it's my time, he's just like, I'm fat. He used the words that he used were that he's fatalistic if it's my time, it's my time. And he compared himself to his 87 year old grandfather who advises, never mind Corona. And, you know, my immediate response was like, well, your grandfather's 87 and he's done a lot of stuff. And he also, I know who this guy is and he's made a ton of money and he's probably protecting himself really well. And, um, you know, I mean, this friend is living off of that 87 year old grandfather. 
uh, today at, at, at 33. And the reason why I would conjecture that he's fatalistic and if it's my time, it's my time is because this is in a thread that continues throughout this friend's entire life of lack of importance put on his own decisions because his decisions do not convert to action. He does not have the training that when he commits to something, it turns into something else and there is a reward and his world changes, his experience changes. I know this person and I know that this is not his reality. He is he's just you know he's 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 kind of lost or, or given up I don't know I think it's more given up than lost like he's just settled into like he's gonna have you know a kind of okay life and he's okay with that and a lot of friends you know I've spoken many times about the mental health aspects about the people at risk about the impoverished like those are really good reasons for us to make decisions around what you know what 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 we do, what we activate in the world around coronavirus but that's not what's driving this that's not what like the people on the lower east side partying in the streets are doing like they're just like oh yo it's fucking anarchy we can drink in the streets it's like new orleans like Fuck, like, that's horrible. And I don't, this is what I said on my Instagram, I do not relate to those people. This is not an opportunity in that sense. The opportunity is in the meditation of it to me. And when I, you know, this is not a blood on the streets by real estate or blood on the streets, you know, have some fun on the streets moment. I don't see the gain in any of this. The only people I speak to who who are on the other side of it and they, re, they, they, you know, give me their side. It's all just like we end up in this. Okay. Agreement that is just, I care more than you do. And they're kind of just like, eh, you know, fuck it. It's like shit sucks and whatever. I haven't had someone convey to me with passion or with, you know, reason, thought out reason, their decision to leave their house and, you know, not care about these things. Uh, Correas, where I am in Mexico, I've been vocal this entire time. I don't think anyone is listening, so I'll speak freely. I don't really care. I hope, I mean, I hope they are listening because I have nothing, you know, I'm not uh, disrespectful and I'm not ashamed of my opinions, but... So I'm the only like foreigner here. Everyone else is everyone else who is here is like a longtime Correas resident or just part of the community, you know. They're an owner or they're someone who's been like working on things here for a long time. So they all kind of have this like cadence of how things go. And the way things go is this is like a little tiny pocket of the world. It's sort of like, like if you think about the Hamptons, you know, this is like Guadalajara's Hamptons, but imagine if it's like exclusively the super, super, super rich and like, like Spielberg is here. Heidi Klum is here. The houses are all like architectural, artistic monuments. It's gorgeous. There's no like, okay place. It's all gorgeous. 
and so everyone here is like super cultivated and 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 that in their in their favor you know in their uh, like like in the point for them everyone is very they're awesome like they're smart they're cultivated they're like empathetic but they're entitled rich people also who live in bubbles and not everyone but there's a lot of of just like naivete in that sense and and lack of empathy for the experience of the other and like so we have the so so we're we're in an, a beautiful position where we're isolated it's effectively it's sort of like a peninsula it's, it's not an island but it's like we're we're like on a horn and there's tons of checkpoints to get here and just like you can't get here if if you're not want, if you're not like you know staying here um you have to be registered and stuff and the security has to let you and they test you all this stuff and that's it's incredible it's beautiful it's a safe haven but they've just like so when so when things were starting up like once a few months ago when thing when people were starting to like normalize a little bit I was like, hey, you know, I, I said this like on the group chat. We have like a 200 person group chat for the whole community. That's kind of like the forum. And I, I was just like, hey, you know, I'm not from here and respect to all of you. But uh, I want to throw out there that like, you know, for those who need to to rent their places to pay workers and, and pay overhead and stuff, total respect exempt, you know, do what you have to do. But for those who are just, you know, who it's not important to, not necessary, not essential, think about not doing that. We have a beautiful bubble here where everyone's been here for three months and we can socialize safely and we have, you know, resources. We're, we're self-sufficient and this is a unique thing. And like we can all, th like the stress that the rest of the world is feeling, we're not feeling. And maybe, you know, maintain that don't invite new people in for no reason and everyone got a lot of people privately said you know bravo like like but all these people just like especially this guy who owns uh he's one of the owners of the hotel development which is like obvious like he like trashed me on the group chat like basically called me a snowflake um and started talking about how I, this was like a political thing or something. And I was like, whoa, 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 you're like, what are you? you what? <laughs> no, I'm just talking about like we're in a, the middle of a virus. It's not a political thing. It's like it, it's the same thing that's happened now with masks. Masks are not political. Like where the ma you know, it's, it's just it's, it's it's scientific. And it's civic responsibility. And anyway, rather than, so we took half measures. No one listened to me. Everyone who, you know, supported me in the background didn't speak up. And they, you know, they started renting houses. So I started seeing new people all the time. Everyone's partying and eating together. And um, the measures were supposed to be that everyone has a mandatory two-week quarantine in their home. They can't socialize with anyone. They can't use any facilities. They can't go to public places. And then they have to wear a red bracelet versus a green bracelet, which means, like, you're new. And there's designated areas that so you can go swimming, but you go on, like, this part of the beach, stuff like that. So it's to separate the people who are potentially bringing in the virus. 
no one respected it. Uh, like I was over at friends two weeks ago and people who have been here for months and like it's six of us for dinner and it just comes up in conversation like a half hour into dinner his funny story about how he went to Guadalajara and snuck back in without having to get the red bracelet and I've just spent this is someone who's been here for you know for four months with me who I see all the time now and he didn't mention this to me that he went to Guadalajara and back and like he's got he's got kid he's got three kids here so like I trust this guy to be like super super safe but still like he should have said to me hey Sean I know that you're self-isolating and you know keeping healthy just FYI like I'm not sick but you know I have been to Guadalajara and back in the last 48 hours <laughs> and like and then, and then another guy at the table was like, oh, yeah, like I did, too. Like five minutes later, I'm like, wait, everyone here has been exposed to the virus except for me. And no one mentions this until because Guadalajara has the virus. We don't have it here, but Guadalajara does. And um, so so no one's been respecting it. And all the new people are just like like I like at tables at the restaurants are are like half people who have been here forever and half new people and I'm just like I'm staying by myself but uh so what happened two days ago is the guy puts out a blast on the on the chat and he's just like update to the restrictions there are no more restrictions none of you are respecting them so you got what you asked for you can be self you know you're self-governed it's up to you if you get sick, you get sick. Just letting you know, we're 200 miles, you know, we're two and a half hours away from any clinic that can actually support someone with coronavirus. The local clinic is for like, you know, jellyfish bites. And that's the mentality worldwide, I think. People just don't give a fuck anymore. They're just like, like, I keep hearing people be like, I'm tired of it. The same way, it's the same rhetoric as racism. Like, black people saying, we're tired of racism. That, that was like the rhetoric going around when, when the protests really started going. And that was like really good rhetoric because that summarized, that, that synchronized us with their feeling of like, oh, I get what that, like, just, just that phrase, I'm tired of it, we're tired of it, made so much sense. But it's not, you can't be tired of the virus. It's, it's, it's not, it's not the way it works. It doesn't respect you being tired of it. <sighs> Man, it's so frustrating. And I don't relate to this at all. My first reaction to my friend was talking about my film and my music and my show and my clothes and all the stuff I make and how my life is awesome. And like I've developed these things and they're not worth sacrificing so that I can like drink on the street. And then I realized, no, that's actually, wow, I just fell into the same trap. So he, if, if, if that's my reaction and only because I have this film and all these things that are worth so much, I have so much to lose that it puts me in a different position where I respect the virus more because I do not want to lose the things that I have. But then I came down from that and I was like, wait, no, I'm doing the same thing as him. I'm just doing kind of, you know, a better job at playing the field. 
playing the world than he is because he doesn't have those things like he's doing some fucking real estate shit he wanted to be a photographer and he's you know it didn't really work out so he's doing some bullshit real estate shit that he doesn't care about and he's just like you know biding his time on a daily basis so my days are like more full with creative fulfillment and his are not and I compared the two of us and I, I was saying nah fuck that like I don't I don't agree with you because my days are worth more and th- and that was that's the trap because what if I what if they weren't then what then I should go get the virus no like no way so I came down and I realized this was what it's my tea or I wrote this post it's it's this photo photograph of Bianca that I look at it's New Orleans it's the color of the sky that I wake up for every day in the pitch black so that I could see this dark blue. It's the feeling that I got a few days ago when I got a new, like, like a push-up board. And I realized that it put my body in a situation that cracked synapses in me that hadn't been cracked in a long time. And my body just, I felt a shiver into spaces that hadn't been touched. It's when I'm swimming and when I get my breath right and my body goes horizontal naturally with the breath flowing through my body, that feeling, that's what makes me not want to get coronavirus. I love being alive. I love the world. I love my body changing. I love knowing people. I love listening to people. There's this random person on Instagram who, like, I don't know how we connected through whatever, but, like, she's so open with me and she's so, like, we're so different, yet I find these connections when I continue to ask her questions. And I, and she reads my stuff and she gives me these, like, amazing responses and then, like, we, like, I'll, I'll just dedicate, like, hours to talking to this person for no reason other than just like it's rich it feels vibrant life is so great life is awesome it's not because i'm making a film i'm making a film because of all that stuff because of that conversation that's my that's my work and i thought about that this morning when reading Dr. John, because I think he understands that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read my favorite part of the chapter first, and then I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's very short, actually, but um, I'm going to read this part and then start from the beginning. So he talks about these voodoo mothers and spiritual leaders, and one of them said to him, You're going to go on a long journey. You're going to travel across the pond and have plenty of children. And everything you think about today is not going to end up being the way you think of it. The cross you bear is the cross you choose to bear. You are not in season. You are out of order. You got to be in order. All in order. You got to be in season in order to catch the right season when it comes. You got to be in order, all in order. 
to find your way in this world. And now the book is called Dr. John Under a Hoodoo Moon by Mac Rebenack and Jack Rummel, The Life of the Night Tripper. So if you don't know who Dr. John is, he is a, um, Mac Rebenack is his, is his name. Dr. John is a character that he came up with. So he was a, he's a white music man. Well, no one's really white from New Orleans. This is another conversation I was having today. Everyone's a mix, but he, you know, uh, pale, <laughs> you know, light skinned, um, but he's a million things, but he's from New Orleans, Mac Rebenack, and he, uh, I'm now the book's almost over, but spent, you know, pre-Dr. John as we know him, he was many, many things. And he's a musician, first and foremost, gigging, running around, doing, playing for three different backing bands in a night, fronting his own, doing session recordings, just like early days hustling music industry in the 60s. And played with legends played on amazing records but like drug addict and you know constantly running from the police like robbing like just you know he was working at a morgue like crazy stories uh and this one comes after his dr john persona had been successful he's been on you know two three albums in for Dr. John. So Dr. John was, was a, like an herbalist basically is what we would probably call him today, but like more voodoo, um, in new Orleans. And he was kind of famous. He was wild and he did, he did crazy things. And so you, I mean, you can read, to, there was, there wasn't an, an other Dr. John that Mac Rebenack based his persona off of. So the whole Gree Gree thing came from, uh, a real there was a person that he was like I want to do that I want to build myself like a persona like him and the first album was like this uh, the, was voodoo music but it what he, he wasn't like a voodoo man he just made he went and did the research and found the voodoo songs and remade them with incredible musicianship and that's what the first album is Grigri um it's incredible, you know, the, the, the big theme song is like, they call me Dr. John, known as the Night Tripper, bottle of gree-gree in my hands. It's, it's magical, it takes you somewhere, it's of a space that doesn't actually exist. It's like, it's like the phenomena of, you know, a nostalgia that you don't know, a memory that you don't have, yet you sense, yet you feel like the 1980s you know like the 1980s that we talk about don't exist <laughs> the new york city that we talk about doesn't really exist if you talk to people if you do the research but but we have nostalgia for it it's like that uh but dr john did it in, in a very special way and then he sort of he just became dr john more as mac rebenak like he dropped the voodoo persona and he was a regular person he was never regular regular but he became just like a musician and he was like the new orleans foremost like he was just the man and he died a couple of years ago um he, he's incredible and his stories are incredible and this is uh you know i'm like two-thirds of the way through the book and this is when he just does like a dedicated chapter to voodoo in New Orleans. And he goes through some stories of what he learned and 
Um, yeah, you know, I'm going to start reading. So this is chapter 9, page 159 of the book. That old hoodoo moon. Every time you get next to me, you tell me that I really can be free, living in eternity. There can be miles and miles between us, but we all live in, in the same moment. Black John the Conqueror, Mac Rebenack. It's from one of his songs. In order to understand a whole lot about the Dr. John scene, you've got to know a little bit about the hoodoo means. In New Orleans, in religion, as in food or race or music, you can't separate nothing from nothing. Everything mingles into the other. Catholic saint worship the Grigri spirits, evangelical tent meetings with spiritual church ceremonies, until nothing is purely itself but becomes part of one funky gumbo. This is why it's so important to understand that in New Orleans, the idea of voodoo, or as we call it, Grigri, is less a distinct religion than a way of life. New Orleans is rich in religions of the people. Standard issue affairs like the Roman Catholic Church, the Southern Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and other organized groups have never really taken hold in their purest forms. Instead, a number of homegrown religions have arisen. They're all distinct from one another, yet they're tangled up with each other in two. These are the spiritual churches. San Cristo, Grigri, Orisha, Santeria, and Obea. Despite their many little differences, all have a main root that remains the same. You got love problems, health problems, job problems, even if you'd need a tip on the numbers. You go see the spiritual church reverend mother, and she'll help you out. There are some links between New Orleans Grigri and the voodoo, Santeria, and Macumba you find in Haiti, Cuba, and Brazil. Grigri is especially tied into voodoo in Haiti because many of the people in New Orleans who practice Grigri are descendants of people who were brought from Haiti in the early 19th century after Haiti's War of Independence against the French. Yet no matter the links, the groups in New Orleans have developed their own particular stamp that sets them apart from the religions of Latin America. The reason why I'm reading this chapter and why I introduced it with everything that I spoke of is this is a practicality to spirituality. And that's what's so beautiful about this chapter and this thinking why I love New Orleans. It's all practical. Why I respect voodoo, spirituality, Grigri, spirituality, Macumba, spirituality, Santeria, Orisha, Obey, all of it. It's practical. It's not some, you know, kumbaya, bullshit, yoga, like trendy white people doing stuff to, I don't know what, like purpose. It's not rhetoric. And you'll, you'll see in this, in this chapter we talk about it, like when, when they don't have a place, when they can't solve this problem, they, they're just like, nah, you need to go see a doctor. Or nah, you, you know, this is not what we do. And they're just, they're just open about it. It all comes down to civic responsibility. This exists to help the people. Internally and collectively. And that's what's so beautiful about it. And we, you know, United States white people like we lose the practicality of these practices there's no functionality to it they are just ceremony it's like when people talk about tea the japanese tea ceremony like they create this idea of a tea ceremony that is meaningless there is a tea ceremony it's extremely meaningful and there is intense practice to it but it's not something that you go and, you, you know, you pay someone 40 bucks for 45 minutes. 
it's something that you dedicate yourself to for years and you learn how it integrates philosophically, idealistically, practically into your day-to-day and your community. I first picked up some knowledge about Grigri from my sister Bobby, who was into it from a distance. She had an expert's library on the subject, and from David Lasty, who worked at the Bop Shop record store. When I was 13 or 14, David would put me in his pickup truck and ride me around town. By hanging around his family, especially with his mother, I copped a lot of understanding about the Grigri and the spiritual church. About the fourth or fifth time when I met Mr. Lasty, he laid a piece of red cloth on me and wrote one of those spiritual sayings on it, followed by the initials MCS. I asked him what the MCS stood for, and he enlightened me right away. Mother Catherine Seals, probably the greatest reverend mother in New Orleans during this century. From Mr. Lasty, I learned that Mother Catherine Seals performed miracles. I also found out that her Temple of the Innocent Blood, a home for rundown whores who were ill or could no longer make a living, was at the same time one of the earliest spiritual churches in New Orleans. Along with prostitutes, Mary Catherine also took in women, women who had had coat hanger abortions and were turned away by Charity Hospital. She saved their asses, then put them to work for the church. She called the children of these women her angels. All the older women, and some men, she called her saints. Mother Seals' approach was interesting because she combined Grigri with all kinds of other practices. She was half evangelical Christian, half New Orleans Indian, the Mardi Gras Indian saint is the Native American figure Blackhawk, and of course, she mixed a lot of Catholic saint worship in there too. Mother Seals healed people in her church through the laying of hands, the laying on of hands, and by a mystical extraction of objects from people's bodies. This healing aspect is what makes the spiritual church akin to Grigri, which stresses healing folk, healing with folk medicine made from roots and herbs gathered in the swamps and woods around New Orleans. Yet even though there is an overlap, the Grigri people and the spiritual church people don't have much to do with each other. Their ceremonies and their beliefs are different, even if their roots are the same. Mother Catherine was so powerful in her time that pieces of cloth from her altar used to be snipped off and inscribed from prayers by other reverend mothers who would pass them on to help people in need. Her name was also used to evoke help from God. You'll see her initials, MCS, appearing in cemeteries and on walls around New Orleans. One day I was visiting the Lasties and met a neighborhood woman in the backyard. She sat me down, took my hands, looked me straight in the eye, and said, you going to go on a long journey. You going to travel across the pond and have plenty of children. And anything you think about today is not going to end up being the way you think of it. The cross you bear is the cross you bear. Then she looked me even deeper in the eye and began telling me parables. You're not in season. You're out of order. You got to be in order. All in order. You got to be in season in order to catch the right season when it come. You got to be in order. All in order to find your way in this world. It was my first encounter with a reverend mother, though I didn't know it at the time. Much later in my life, I met her again, though this time I recognized her for what she was. She was an old, old lady by then, 
and she'd moved from the Ninth Ward Church to her daughter, her daughter Marianne's. She told me all kinds of things. Stories about my children, for instance, that seemed like nonsense when I was a kid, but later came to pass. Many people in her family stutter. Some are tangle-eyed. Some are very deep, like her husband Deacon Frank. And some prophecy in parables. Other reverend mothers were just as heavy. For instance, when the daughter of Mother Cancenero was kidnapped by a pimp, it's said she made a pilgrimage on her knees carrying a cross all the way to Florida and back. Even when she got her daughter back, she didn't lighten up. She worked herself to death for her children, which included all the children in her neighborhood. Later, when I was around 20 and was deep into the action on the streets, I used to go up into the bell tower of the St. Rock Cemetery to steal grease from the bells to make goofer dust with. Goofer dust is a combination of dirt from a graveyard, gunpowder, and grease from them bells. If you throw it into somebody's eyes, it'll blind them and throwing it behind them while they're walking away can put a curse on them. St. Rock Park also used to be New Orleans' narcotic-dealing park extraordinaire, so making a run over there was convenient for me in several ways, even though such a combination of drugs and grigri is not what the Reverend Mothers were about. I used the goofer dust and other grigri ceremonies to curse my enemies and bring me good luck when the police with good luck with the police when I was out doing my business. In the early 60s, when I was doing a lot of sessions at Cosimo Matassa's studio, I hooked up musically with another kind of spiritual church faith healer named Prophet Green, who wasn't anything like the real article. I always got a kick out of that old jive hound's name. He made Prophet Green, all right. He billed himself as Prophet Green from New Orleans. He wasn't from New Orleans, and that was our first tip-off right there. And he had himself a little review that was somewhere between a minstrel show, a snake oil hustle, and a revival. He used to fascinate the shit out of me because he was one of the first cats I ever met who sported big-time diamonds. I mean the kind you might see on Liberace, especially most of Prophet Green's were real. Except most of Prophet Green's were real. All his clothes were tailor-made, and he was one of the first cats I saw driving a flashy foreign car. A Jaguar, I think it was. Prophet Green paid us well, and as soon as the gig had finished, so everybody dug him. He always used to send out for a case of Taylor's Tawny Port and Cream Sherry and a big batch of Oyster Po' Boys for everybody when the gig had ended. If you don't know what Po' Boys are, they're, they're sandwiches. Uh, po' Boys, it came from uh, workers, like, like, like construction workers, getting just the bare essentials. Bread and, you know, fish or meat or whatever it may be. But a Po' Boy is just, just you know, sliced baguette, basically, with in this case, oysters in the middle, and it's a New Orleans thing. It's a sandwich. Prophet Green had figured a way to mingle the sacred and the profane into a finely wrought thing, and I dug that about him too. But no matter how you cut it, Prophet Green wasn't the genuine spiritual article. What he did represent was a hustling offshoot of the real thing. Only later, when it came to me a little bit unexpectedly, did I seriously begin to get into the real thing. One of my first serious contacts with the Reverend Mothers happened a bit before I did the Grigri album. I ran into Mother Shannon, a well-known Reverend Mother, and told her I wanted to cut some voodoo songs. She said, oh no, you cannot do that. Then I said, well, how about if I use the tune but change the words? And she gave me her okay. So that's what I talked about earlier, like how he took on this persona. In the early 1970s, my friends Boots Toops and his wife Onita and Jack Richardson, who ran a Santeria Botanica in New Orleans, got together with two reverend mothers, and they asked me to front a temple, while we, which we ended up calling Dr. John's Temple of Voodoo. 
Boots Toops, who I met in the late 60s, was a character and high spiritual soul floating around New Orleans. He was from the Lower Ninth Ward, had been shot a number of times, he had bullet holes all over his head, neck, and body, and was considered retarded by his family and a lot of people over there. In fact, he was an aware person, a high-degree mason, high in witchcraft and, and voodoo. But the thing about Boots was that he was also a character. If he decided the time was right to go off on a spree, he'd disappear and be drunk for a week. I remember Boots showed up one night after after I hadn't seen him for a while. His head all swathed in bandages. I said, what happened? He said, oh, this guy shot me in the back of the head. I put some straw on the wound, drank some whiskey, and fell asleep in the back of a truck. The next day, I went over and got it fixed. He'd been shot so many times it was getting to be second nature to him. For a guy who many claimed was retarded, Boots wrote an eloquent and correct charter for the temple. One of our reverend mothers got on the phone with the Louisiana Secretary of State, Wade Martin, and got the charter filed properly so our, our temple and others would have an official state recognition. A state charter protects the Reverend Mothers from getting busted by the Vice Squad for their healing practices and fortune-telling, as well as protecting their right to predict lottery and racehorse numbers, which the Vice Cops would otherwise claim aided and abetted gambling. The Dr. John Temple of Voodoo was run out of a Grigri shop on St. Philip Street, and over the years I hung out there quite a bit. In the comings and goings, a couple of the Reverend Mothers managed to catch me on the side and pull my coat about the real doings of Grigri. They'd tell me, Mac, we, we got you fronting this thing, but you got to know the real deal. We got, to te we got to school you about Grigri. Every time I was in town, I got a call from the Reverend Mothers, and my schooling continued. Eventually, I met them all. Now, unfortunately, many of these women have been forced to scatter around the country as things have changed in New Orleans. One of my favorite mothers is now in Miami. Her house in New Orleans had been broken into so many times and she had been beaten up so often, terrible things for an old lady to have to suffer through, that she packed up and left. I had known only a little about the tradition before the Reverend Mothers began to school me, and most of what I knew concerned Mother Catherine Seals and her Temple of the Innocent Blood. I knew that the spiritual church music was solid. If you ever heard Frank Deacon last year or Reverend Hill play the drums, you was hearing some of the best beats in New Orleans in their original forms. Styles related to African ritual drumming as it came down to New Orleans. Just like if you ever heard Paul Barberin play drums, you'd be hearing the original second-line drumming. This drumming really turned me out and led me to check out not just spiritual church music, but a lot of other things connected with the Hoodoo Church. Uh, lots packed into that paragraph. Do some Wikipedia, you know, like uh, Congo Square. Um, I mean, the second line, like if you don't know what, what all this is. I highly, I'm, I'm happy to tell you if you want, if you DM me or something. Um, but yeah, look up Congo Square history of congo square and look up second line what those things are if you don't know what those things are look them up and and it's very tons of you could read books you could read summaries i dug the spiritual and hoodoo church people because their bag wasn't like organized religion they were organized in that they would help their local community and besides that they were loose and free just looking to help in 1960 when i had when i had got shanked in my back mrs lasty treated me by passing a tomahawk over my back and mixing up a formula to help me heal. She laid a spider web over the wound to encourage coagulation, and on top of this burned some leaves. Not only did I heal very fast, but the treatment didn't leave no scar. That kind of medical treatment was one of the things they provided for the New Orleans community. They never pretended that they could heal everything either. They'd look at what was wrong with you, and if they could heal you, they'd do it. If not, they'd tell you to go see a doctor. When I was being schooled by the Reverend Mothers, I had not yet gotten any kind of hold of my on my narcotics problem, and they knew it. None of them came right out and called me out on it, 
but I knew that a few of them were more than a little skeptical of me. I didn't apply myself to learning what they had to teach me with anything like the attention they expected. Now, I got to admit I wasn't the easiest student to win over. One of these reverend mothers used to make me swear I would do right by them, repeating a series of oaths. If you betray this trust, may devils rip out your tongue to the tenth generation. Whew. When I took these oaths, I thought some of them was kind of funny. To me, they sounded more like welcome to the family mafia rituals than spiritual promises. But I don't want to push my luck, so the parts I learned under oath I won't reveal. One of the tough things about my spiritual education was that when they were teaching me these things, most of the time I had just come in off the road, dead tired and constantly nodding off. The Reverend Mothers kept pumping me full of coffee and cola nuts to keep me awake. They propped me up, shook me awake. Some of them were pretty mean and got their kicks from slapping me, yelling at me, and telling me off. They would long-windedly wrap me to sleep, and I would long-sleepingly try to wake up for them. I let them down a lot of times. But they didn't give up so easily, and I've got a lot to thank them for. Once, when we were driving to a gig in Lafayette, Louisiana, we found ourselves in the path of an oncoming hurricane. When the weather began to get really bad, I stopped by the side of the road and called this mother. Reverend, she said, don't worry, we'll pray, we'll burn candles for you. The hurricane won't bother you. Sure enough, the hurricane veered off in another direction. Now, you can say that maybe it was going to do that anyway, but I'm not so sure. These women had some power. I remember when I cut the song, Hollywood Be Thy Name, with its lyrics riffing off the Lord's Prayer. I caught a lot of flack from the mothers. Boots came by my pad in the middle of the night and dragged me off to one of the mothers' houses. Mac, he said, you truly messed up. You really did it. This is the lowest form of blasphemy. We didn't think you'd ever do something like this. I said, that's why I did it. One of the Reverend Mothers looked at Boots and said, I told you that's why he did it. But they forgave me eventually and kept at my education. The mothers taught me that everything in nature is part of God, and everything of God is spiritual. My schooling continued with Jack Richardson and Noel Guillot, who used to take me along with these Santeria and Orisha people out in the woods near Mississippi to collect large amounts of Dr. John the Conqueror and Adam and Eve roots, two kinds of herbs used in healing and Greek rituals. So Dr. John the Conqueror and Adam and Eve roots, they're referring to the the real Dr. John, not Mac Rebenach, Dr. John. So, so Dr. John was such an influential healer, doctor, whatever you want to call him, that, you know, there were, there were practices and, and herbs named after him. Boots Toops, meanwhile, taught me how to write Aramaic, Hebrew, and Arabic. He had the Reverend Mothers teaching me the right names for all the trees and plants. I forget a lot of this now, but back then, I knew which roots were under which tree and which were used for mystical high magic, low magic, hoodoo, orisha, and obeya. I also learned more about ceremonies. Your typical hoodoo ceremony went down when a reverend mother was called upon to heal someone. Friends and relatives of the person being healed would show up at the reverend mother's pad. Often, there would be several reverend mothers in attendance. A litany would start, would start the ceremony. The four corners of the room, which represented the quat parishes of the universe— Earth, wind, fire, and water would be cleansed by sprinkling water and burning incense. Sometime during the litany, someone would begin to chant and play sacred rhythms on, broom, on broomsticks nailed with bottle tops. Coke bottles, pots and pans, anything available. A person or two might bring congas and start to build the rhythm. All these voices, congas, bottles, and pans would work together until a mesmerizing chant was laid down to help the healing. The music was a way of getting into the spirit to heal the meat. 
a little later, during my time in, uh, d- during the time my album In the Right Place was on the charts, I stumbled onto a prop that became especially fond of. Prince, a mummified head that I bought from a trapper in the backwoods of Georgia who sold pelts and snakeskin and the like. Recently, I've seen several photos of me with Jerry Wexler at Carnegie Hall in which I'm holding Prince casually under my arm. I used to bring Prince on gigs, set him atop a mic stand, and mount a hanger with clothes underneath him, situated proudly behind some keyboards. He looked just like a very heavy, very still member of the band. Nobody ever asked, is something wrong with that guy? He just looked like an extra musician. Uh, Jerry Wexler was label president, and Prince, like if you know Dr. John, like you could find these pictures, they're ubiquitous, the, the head. Prince ended up getting me and some Grigri people in trouble when a Santeria church was busted and the, head of the, and the head was confiscated by the police. Jack, who ran the Santeria Temple of Baal, got his ass busted smuggling guns to Latin America in boxes marked Articulos Religiosos. When the police came down on him, they busted Prince too. Prince ended up in the hands of Dr. Minyard, a New Orleans cor- coroner, who was able to supply me with some story behind the head atop the man. The police had suspected the head belonged to someone who had been snuffed, but Dr. Minyard traced Prince's fancy dental work and discovered he had been used as a practice patient in a dental school in the 1800s. A century and many adventures later, Prince now resides in Charity Hospital along with a host of other medical oddities. Around 1971 or 72, the band did a gig called Mardi Gras Mambo out in Leander Prairis Hall and St. Bernard Parish. This was one of the many corrupt parishes in Louisiana. I remember Narcotic Squad undercover agents offering me and Professor Longhair marijuana during the gig, pot that had been confiscated from members of the audience earlier in that same gig. Boots had put out a lot of publicity for these gigs, including a pamphlet promising promising that I'd be tossing Dr. John the Conqueror roots out for free during the gig. You'd have to pay for them if you came later at the shop. During the show, I got spooked by my own song, Jump Sturdy, in which I'd mentioned Julia Jackson, a well-known Grigri herb doctor, and said she had killed Jump Sturdy, the song's central figure. After a strange-looking woman came up to me, she looked like she was in a Mardi Gras costume, though later I realized she was probably wearing her regular root doctor clothes. She said, Dr. John, I got to talk to you. I could tell she was real pissed off, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh. She took me aside and said, do you know who I am? I said, tongue-in-cheek, no, but you look familiar. That was the wrong thing to say. She said, you don't know me from Adam. I'm Queen Julia Jackson. What you said about me and your song was a goddamn lie. I said, I think I immarbolized you. I meant it, but I was coming off half-ironically, too. This pissed her off even more. You're never going to be immortal till you're dead. Do I look dead to you? And she walked off. I never saw her again. As the neighborhoods got more and more fractured, a lot less of the mothers got older. As the neighborhoods got more and more fractured and a lot of the reverend mothers got older, they were able to do less and less for the city and the citizens. They were not of the meek. Still, many of them suffered, especially my friends, the Lasties. Melvin Lasty, one of the guiding lights behind AFO Records and a great cornet player, was stricken with cancer around 1970 when he was just in his early 40s. The doctor told him they could operate to remove the cancer, but that he wouldn't be able to play after the surgery. He said he'd rather die than lose the ability to play. So he refused treatment and became something like a Christ figure amongst the spiritual church people. I've seen pictures of him, thin and pale, looking like Christ. His suffering was terrifying and inspirational. I love that. 
outlook, terrifying and inspirational. Can't see the light without feeling the dark. Boots Toops also suffered. His first wife, Onita, got poisoned by a witch in New Orleans, by a witch in New Orleans and died. After that, Boots got shot a couple more times and got poisoned. And got poisoned. At least I heard he died, although I never knew for sure if this was true. A number of times, I've seen old-time Grigri people around New Orleans, and they'll still tell me, hey, I just saw Boots. I want to ask them, did you see him in the spirit or the meat? But I can't. That's the one question you can't ask, because even though I've got a feeling he's dead, it might be that he's just laying low. It's so painful for me to think of the Reverend Mother's who once were the spiritual backbone of this city and held communities together in a respectful way, now that most of them are gone. It used to be that people who couldn't afford doctors and hospitals would go to see a reverend mother or hoodoo doctor in their neighborhood for medical advice and spiritual comfort. The people of Grigri and the spiritual church kept a sense of togetherness alive by being trusted servants of the community. That's to some degree missing now. They were so believing in their thing, and I loved them for that. That's what I consider spiritual people. And he's writing in, what year was this? 1990, 1994 is when this book was published. So he was writing this, you know, in the early 90s. I love all those ideas so much, especially that you know, the civic responsibility and the embrace of the dark to get to the light. Hope everyone has a wonderful day.